take up our Bibles at this time and turn to that psalm, to Psalm 80. As we continue our summer through some of the psalms, coming to a psalm that way back in the day I preached as uh, an Advent sermon in terms of looking to that, that vine, that placement uh, of the root that the Lord would continue to, to build and raise up. But to speak here differently in terms of perhaps the occupations that are listed here, those roles of which, the, the office of which our Lord and our Savior uphold among us, that we would give ourselves to understanding why we need Him to restore and shine and save. And so that's a dealing then in our hearts with that which is in us, that which needs to be worked through by way of forgiveness and by way of His grace. So let's hear these words, Psalm 80, paying special attention to the reading of God's Word because it is that, the very Word of Almighty God. Psalm 80, to the choir master, according to Lily's, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might. And come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the field, feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. Words in many ways of a lament, of the struggle to see what is going on. And yet one father still of trust. To where else can we go but to a good shepherd, to a faithful vine dresser, to an almighty God able not only to hear us but act upon our prayers. And yet, Father, as we come before your holiness in this word, we recognize that, Lord, there was a reason for much of, of that which is going on. And it's not because you have stopped being who you are or faithful to being who you are. But that, Father, we, your people, 
have not been faithful to be who you call us to be. And so, Lord, in the ways that you need to correct us and chastise us, to confront us under repentance and faith tonight, we pray that you would do that. But remind us of who you are, a God able to work a great restoration, a God of every blessing, a God able and willing to save. And so, Father, we ask, bless the proclamation of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children of God called to be saints, all of us in this room, I pray, seek to be good in the jobs or the vocations that God has called us to. That is certainly a desire, and it's much more than just a, a Dutch work ethic kind of thing. There should be, rightly, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you would do all to the glory of God, that we would work heartily unto the Lord and not to men. And so when things go wrong at work, and certainly we can all understand those evenings, maybe you've had some of those this week where nothing seems to go right. That part won't run right. Those people, all the work that we could get done if there weren't any people, just those struggles that we have. And so if we consider these things, when things go wrong, sometimes it's our fault as workers, it's our negligence. Perhaps we've forgotten something. We forgot to add, forgot to add something to the recipe or, or, or we forgot an adjustment that needed to be made to the machinery that we were using. But sometimes the problem was with the products or services that are offered. That perhaps it had nothing to do with you but everything to do with that done by a coworker, or that which you produce that it just doesn't get the job done right. And so it's never always perhaps that cut and dry and that easy to figure out. But, but there are multiple factors involved in terms of that struggle of that day or that failure of that product. And so as we consider Psalm 80 tonight, there seems to be a way in which God's people in crying out to that shepherd, in crying out to that vine dresser, there is a sense in which there is thought, at least on the part of the psalmist, that, well, God, are you having a bad day? Have you had a struggle at work? Has the shepherd lost an understanding of the plight of his sheep? Has the vine dresser shown neglect to that vine that he planted? Because look at what's happening. Those walls are broken down and, and the animals come in and they eat that. And, and this vine is burned and destroyed. When are you going to come to save us? When are you going to draw near to care for us? And in a way, it would be really nice to be able to say that Asaph in this psalm is the only one who addresses God that way. The only one who looks at God as perhaps being negligent or uninformed or slow to act or not understanding the true plight of that which we are going through. Has the shepherd lost some of his sheep? Has the vine dresser improperly pruned? Has God done something wrong? Is the brokenness in our life his fault, a matter of his negligence or forgetfulness? And so in that moment, our hearts become embittered. 
God, have you forgotten? Give ear, God. Listen to me. Why are things this way? Why is life going this way? Why is this struggle so real? But in doing so, even with that bit of edge, we forget who God is. I, the Lord, change not. We see it every time we walk into the church. Great is thy faithfulness. We read it every time we walk in this church. God, you are the good shepherd. You are a faithful vine dresser. You are a faithful God. This is our confession. This is our comfort. And so in being brought before their need and brokenness, the people of God, His sheep and His branches, those people that we are a part of, we cry out for Him to restore and to shine and to save. That's the theme we want to look at tonight. Being brought before their need and brokenness, the people of God, His sheep and branches, cry out for Him to restore and shine and save. That He would turn again to them. That He would turn again to us. And so we pray that He would do that. Again, as a righteous shepherd, we see that in the first seven verses. And then in verses 8 through 19, we see that He is a redeeming vine dresser. A righteous shepherd and a redeeming vine dresser. And as we hear that, a righteous shepherd, we love that imagery. I love every time I get to read Psalm 23 and recite it. There's beauty in it. There's a reason that no matter the circumstances of our lives, that's so often where we turn back to. God, you are at work among us as a shepherd. You are a good, good, and faithful shepherd. And not just in Psalm 23, but in so many of the Psalms. But here it it takes on a different edge. Instead of as a word of praise, it almost takes on a, a form of accusation. God, this is who you are. And so while we are quick to confess him to be good, we're not always quick to confess him as righteous. We claim the blessing of Psalm 23 without also hearing that call to follow. We're quicker to say that he is merciful than to say that he is just. We love the green pastures. We love the table laid before us. But we don't love that rod and staff as much as we say they comfort us. And so that's going to shape how we call out to him. That shapes the way that we pray to him. That shapes the way Asaph begins the focus of Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, verse 1. You who lead Joseph like a flock. This is who you are. So claiming all of that, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me. There's an understanding of submission to him. But also an understanding, Lord, you are our only way of blessing. You're the only one who can provide that which we ask for. It says in Isaiah 49.10, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. So here is that conflict. Because God, this is who we believe you to be. This is how you have acted. This is how you've always acted on behalf of your people. 
And you are almighty. You are, you are worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. That all of your works cry your glory. Because you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. It's a request, but also a reality. This is who our God is. The one who meets us from above the mercy seat. The God who is faithful to be present among us. The one who speaks to us by way of his commands and by way of every word of his gospel. This is the God that is present. And so if he is the one that we come to, there is a humility that we are instantly called to before that shepherd. Not just in terms of that we're called to follow him, but that we're called to bow to him. To truly submit our hearts to him. Psalm 99 verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. And so Asaph now is asking for something more. Not only hear us, but manifest yourself among us. It becomes the language of theophany. Reveal yourself to us again like that in our day. In this moment where nothing makes sense, where the northern kingdom truly is no more, and we wonder what else is left. Meet with us here. Act visibly on our behalf. Verse 2, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. We have real needs. And that isn't just us today. Here are these people in the times of this psalm. We need to be cared for. We need to be protected. Lord, be gracious, Amos 5.15, hate evil and love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And now we start to understand the tension. Because this isn't talking about a, a, an indiscriminate people or a, a, an indistinct people. Once Asaph starts using this language... Now we start to hear what has happened among the northern kingdom. What has happened amongst Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Because in this language he is saying to God, God, come to us like a warrior. Come to us as our hero. Deliver us from our afflictions. But what are their afflictions? It's us. We have not been faithful as a collective to care for the ark, to care for the worship of God. That these tribes became even a byword of unfaithfulness among the people of Israel. That to think, here are those who descend from Joseph, and yet they are passed over for the line of Judah. And now we start to hear why that refrain, that theme of the psalm, continues to be repeated over and over. Because ultimately it is a prayer saying, deliver us from us. Deliver us from us. From our sin. From the ways that we've turned away from you. For the ways in which we have been unwilling to follow. So restore us, O God. Let your face shine. 
that we may be saved. Turn us again to yourself. Lord, it's not only a turn your ear, but come and turn us. Restore us to a right relationship with you. Restore us materially, yes, but spiritually, Father. Restore us unto the joy of our salvation. Remind us of the wonder of the blessing you called Aaron to pour out on your people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. Turn it toward you and give you peace. Psalm 31, verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Or even in Psalm 85, verse 4, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. The psalm comes now to understand in a small way the gravity of what has taken place. But has God changed? Has God changed in any way among those people? Has He changed in any way among us? It was good and right for them to call out to the Lord, to be moved, as one commentator says, to an excess of boldness in their prayer. That's where we need to be found. That in recognizing who we are and our great need for the Lord, for His Word, for His blessing, and for His peace. We call out as His sons and daughters. We call out as those cared for by that good shepherd. Again, write it down. He has not changed. He will never change. He has never stopped working. He has never stopped caring. Even when it seems, God, everything is messed up. How could these things happen? Why is this brokenness real? Why has this defeat come? Why have your people turned? When it seems that he has even left us, or we feel alienated from him, he's still there. He is always a good shepherd. And so not only do we need to confess that, to anchor into that like we sang this morning. But what we need to confess is, Father, I hate that I have to ask for that. I despise it. Because I know that I have alienated myself from you. That my sin gets in the way of right fellowship. That all of those ways in which I refuse to follow you end in these things, and I should know that. In a sense, we would say, I should know better. But yet it takes all of that intro to come to verse 4, to at least in this way, understand that grappling with him as being that kind of righteous shepherd. Verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? And the beginning of this verse could be translated simply, Yahweh is hosts. You are all power. You are that omnipotent God. That is the one we come to. That's the kind of shepherd that is ours. 
It is a claim upon all the powers of God to work on behalf and for his people, but more importantly, his glory. It is a statement of his ability. You are able not only to hear, but to restore and to care. But God, our experience before you right now seems the opposite of that. According to our eye test and what we think we know, something doesn't match up. Literally, he asked, God, how long will you smoke against our prayers? This very visible anger that we seem to experience. A statement which some would describe as God's disappointment at best and his anger at worst. But if we think about it, it's really the wrong question. It's one we ask a lot, but it's probably not the right question. And we usually ask it when we simply come to God concerning our circumstances. This is what we see. This is the panic. These are the consequences. This is all of it. And we come and say, God, fix this. Fix the stuff. Fix the brokenness. Fix what we see. Instead of first asking, fix me. Fix my heart. Fix my eyes. Fix how I see these things and how I interact with them. We don't always take the time to consider our hearts or the place of God's people in regard to his word. And so it continues, verse 5, you have fed them with a bread of tears. You have given them tears to drink in full measure. Instead of green pastures, God, and still waters, all we eat is tears, all we drink is tears. Only sadness to consume all the time. Verse 6, you make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh amongst themselves. We are your people, God, and look at what has happened to these tribes, our brothers, All they know is scorn and strife and laughter and mocking. But then why would you have to ask, restore us, let your face shine that we may be saved? Oh, that has everything to do with them, to the heathen nations that came. Your anger and disappointment is with us. Your sadness is with us. The hurts that we are enduring are self-inflicted. Everything you said in your word about neglecting your word and leaving true worship and moving away from your law and worshiping the idols of the nations, all of that curse has come true. It is there before our eyes, but we don't think about it. God, be good, be merciful, but don't be just. And yet we can still come, right? There never comes a point in this psalm or in every any word where God says, you know what, you may not come and repent anymore. You know what, your contrition, it doesn't matter to me now. I've extended you people far too much forgiveness. That's why we can keep coming asking, restore us, O God of hosts. You're powerful to do that. 
even in spite of my sin and my weakness and my brokenness, you can do that work. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Who is the only one who can restore and bless and save? But a good shepherd, a righteous shepherd, our good shepherd. And the wonder is that that shepherd is drawn near to us and his name is Christ. That Jesus comes in the wonder of this word and says what in John 10? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, even them. These wandering, at times rebellious and stubborn animals. I come for you. I will lead you. I lay down my life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. And here's the key. That, O oh Lord of hosts, is in your power. Restore our ears. Restore our hearts. Restore our blessing. Restore to us the wonder of salvation. And so, Christian, keep calling out to that good shepherd. You have every reason to continue to call out to him. But before you are quick to blame him or give him a less than stellar job evaluation in terms of his shepherding, be reminded that he is good, that he is always the best, that he has never stopped his work, that he has never stopped caring for the sheep. But then consider your own heart. How have I strayed from him? How have I neglected his word? How have I set aside his law? How have I broken covenant with him? That if he is using that rod and staff as a comfort to you, to bring you back to himself, receive it in crying this out. Restore us. Restore me, God. Let your face shine on me that I may be saved. And that isn't just his blessing to us as individuals, that's his body. And so the wonder then of the psalm pivoting to be able to look then at God who is a vine dresser, who has taken that vine for himself, one in whom he has planted then firmly in our midst, in his son as well as a redeeming vine dresser and that in the second place. Because it's the wonder then of this history of which that, that image shifts and yet there's still that struggle. Because as we look at that situation again in life, not only does it feel like the sheep are scattered and everything is messed up and broken and, and they're wandering and, and what's going to go on and how are you going to fix it, but now, now you're shifting to the vine and, and the fruit is messed up and it's being eaten and it's not protected and it's not cared for. And... But wait a minute. Whose vine is it? Who is the one always at work? Who is the one always faithful? It is that same God of hosts. Who is host? 
who is powerful and strong and mighty to save. And he showed it. The Exodus becomes that story. Verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You've taken a people to plant somewhere else. To your glory, to your praise. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You made space for them. You gave them a good land for one that they did not work and they did not earn. A land flowing with milk and honey by way of your goodness and grace to a people. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. God is a master vine dresser. This vine that he plants, that small people, not chosen because of their numbers or any other thing, but because of God's affection for them, are planted in the best possible place and they grow. His kingdom expands in every direction for his glory. It's the joy of the declaration of Psalm 72, verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is his intention. This is his plan. This is his desire and his heart for his people and for his vine. But there's a problem. And so instantly, man in his way, the blame shifter that we are, does what? Oh, it's the woman you gave me. Oh, it's the serpent you made. And yet here, in addressing the issue, instead of looking at God as a good and redeeming vine dresser, it's like the Lord is a demolition man. One negligent in his care for the vine. Verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls? This is not our fault. This is you, God. You have broken down its walls so that all who pass along pluck its fruit. Why? Do we really have the audacity to ask the God who is host this question? Why have you done what you said you would be faithful to do? What you promised to do? If his people would have turned to the Lord and his word and turned away from their wicked ways, there would be no need to ask the question. If they had simply humbled themselves to its hearing, they would have heard what Yahweh already promised to do. The Lord spoke clearly, if this, then this. Oh, but that doesn't sound like the God I believe in. My God is not like that. No, because you're acting like he isn't your God. And yet in that way, there is truth. This is what you have done. Psalm 60, verse 1. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. It's the truth found in Isaiah 5, verses 5 and 6. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And we hear this and say, God, why would you do this to your people? Why would you bring hurt and sorrow among your people? You are a good God. You are a good shepherd. Why would he do this? 
Why would he allow that breakdown to occur? It was already revealed in Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Israel, you were the people that he gave the most full and ardent love to. That all the scriptures in that way is a profound love story. I have loved you. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. You see, the circumstance of this people wasn't the fault or the struggle of the vine dresser. He did everything. He did everything right. He had done everything for the vine. He couldn't have done anything more for that vine and for his people. And that's the hurt then in Isaiah 5 verse 4. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? It's the herd of Jeremiah 2.21, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? But instead of fruitful prospering, what is known is broke down, is the breakdown from without and within. So it ends there, right? Instead of fruitful prospering, what is known is breakdown. The boar from the forest ravages it, verse 13. All that move in the field feed on it. Every insect of every kind is going to have its way. But it's worse. Because his own people, his own vine, were eating and devouring and destroying themselves. It's bad fruit. It's something growing there that shouldn't have been growing there. It's branches moved into that vine that are growing nothing but judgment. Isaiah 5, 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, the problem has never been him. Your beef should never be with him. That it's always about sin. That it's always about us. Or that people we are a part of. It's always been us. And it's why we need, even in this psalm, to not only be humbled in understanding sin and rebellion, our sin and rebellion, but also that we need to continually cry out to him for forgiveness and mercy and grace. That we would cry out, Lord, truly and wholly restore us. Because when it comes to here, and it seems finally that the psalm begins to turn, and there's that understanding of this space and place, and understanding his work and our woe, What now do we cry out to him seeking? Verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts. Not just turn, do it again. Please do it again. 
Turn again to us, O God, even though we turn away so often. Turn again, O God, for you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and tender mercies. Turn again. Look at us that we would repent. Look at us so that we would remember your promises. Look at us so that we would return to you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Turn again, O Lord. That the cry of the psalmist begins to mirror the cry of Isaiah 63, 15 to 17. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge you. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return. Return for the sake of your servants. The tribes of your heritage is... Is this our prayer? That we're not looking, saying, God, even amongst your churches today, why are you not being a faithful shepherd? Why are you not caring for your vine, this church that you have planted in this place? Without first saying, Lord, restore us and let your face shine on us that we would be saved that you would turn again to us, that you would look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine, that you would have regard, that you would take notice, visit us either in punishment or in grace, but come either way that we would be restored. Come. And when we start speaking that way, then we are overwhelmed with, why? I mean, if we would look at those kind of sheep Those of you who raise animals, you're looking at that animal saying, "Uh uh-uh, coal, get rid of it. You're looking at that vine and saying, no, let's hack the thing, let's till it under, we can start again. And here are those kind of animals and those kinds of vines saying, restore us. Work in us. Have your way with us according to your power. And why should he notice and take regard? Because it's his. It's his. That we're not indignant about our vine and what is ours. We hurt and we struggle and we grieve because of what is his. He's redeemed it. He's purchased it with a sacrifice of blood. It is precious to him. And so regard, verse 15, the stock that your right hand planted. Have regard for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Here are the people, God. Here are those that you have called to yourself to be your vine, to be your people. And yes, we know their sin. We know our sin. We know what we've done with the mercies and the graces of God. I mean, it's worse, verse 16, they've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Not only the nations in their fire, but ours. We've burned ourselves. We've played with fire and gotten burned. In many ways, Lord, we know we have received what we deserve. But we're going to cling to your promise to that vine. That you will keep a people for yourself. 
And though you may in your faithfulness prune branches off that do not bear fruit, you are faithful to engrafting others into that vine, both Jew and Gentile. From every tribe and tongue and nation as you make them to abide in the vine, which we know from the Old Testament is none other than Jesus Christ. For the fullness of this next verse is found only and wholly in him. Verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Literally, let your power be with your Benjamin. And you're like, why is that a big deal? I have a friend who has a son named Benjamin. And every time I'm like, hey, son of your right hand, how are you doing? And he thinks it's annoying because that's pastor joke, but anyway. But here it's beautiful. Here it's powerful. Let your place of honor be given to the one who alone takes the place at your right hand. And it's the beauty not only of seizing upon the tribe language here, but more thinking back to Genesis 35. And you remember, Sunday school students, the birth of Benjamin, right? And here is Rachel, so again, beloved son who is coming. And she dies in giving birth, and she names him Benoni, son of my strength or son of my sorrow. But then Jacob calls him the son of his right hand. And so here in this verse is the cry to Yahweh, show your power and manifest it in the Benjamin who will set everything right. That he is pleading, let the Son of Man, the one promised to Adam and Eve and the mother promised, would come in our humanity and save us and cause his home to dwell and abide in him. Derek Kidner captures it beautifully, quote, Israel's calling is focused in a single figure who alone fulfills it, the true vine and son of man, Jesus, end quote. This is the call, bring us to Jesus. Bring us to the Messiah. Bring us to the deliverer to come. And when we know him to be our good shepherd and we come to most fully abide in him, then what is ours? Verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. Promise, give us life and we will call upon your name. Turn to us so that we won't turn away again. That death would be an end to our sinning and an entrance to eternal life. Never turn away again. Here is the true moment of real contrition and repentance in the psalm. And it drives us to many of the calls of scripture, even to that of Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That is how God works life and faith. That's how he calls a people back to himself for the praise of his glory. And more they will seek to find that life only in him not only in a good and righteous shepherd, but also in a good and redeeming vine. John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. People of God, in Christ is the only place of deliverance and peace and joy and restoration forever. It's found in him. Not in how things used to be. Not in any of the things that your eyes can see. Not in any of the things that you might place trust in even now or in the past or maybe even in the future. Are we found in the vine? For we need to be brought again to him. In thanks that he cares for us. In thanks that he brings us and all of his people to abide in him. This cry must be ours. And it must be one that is resolved now in the statement of faith in the last verse. Yes, a repetition. But now is added what? Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. O covenant-keeping God of Israel, who has made covenant with his people according to your word and has brought us to that law that we would live for you, priest to follow the Son. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That we cry out this way even with the psalmist because the psalm concludes in the hope and promise of grace. Again, one commentator writes, it's a statement written in the expectation of transformation and reconciliation. And why can we conclude our reading and our share in this prayer, in this goodness and this grace and this promise in this way? Because he hasn't stopped being who he is. He will never stop being who he is. He is a good and righteous shepherd. He is a faithful and redeeming vine dresser. He is that vine. He is always able to restore and renew. He will save us and all his people from their sins. He will gather us to abide in him and with him forever. So call out to him in repentance and faith. Call out to him in all of the gift of faith that he has given you. Call out to him, this is my sin. These are the ways that I have turned away from you. Turn again to me in grace. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remind me of the promise placed on me every Sunday night in the life of this church. That I would have peace. That I would live peace that I would submit to my shepherd and abide in my vine and that I would trust him forever. Lord, please restore us, O God. Let your face shine on your church that we may be saved. Amen. Our Lord and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of your redeeming love, for the ways that you are faithful to turn to us even though we are so quick to turn away from you. Father, thank you for being so faithful to publishing your word to us each and every week. Though we are so easily forgetful and so quick, Father, to turn our eyes away from your sure promise in an understanding that our eyes take in and our minds turn on apart from you. 
And so, Lord, we thank you that you have provided us a faithful shepherd, that you are a faithful vine dresser, that you have planted not just us, a people, a sinful people, expecting something different, but you have placed us and found us in Christ, the true vine. And so, Lord, as your church, Father, may we humble ourselves before you. May we call out in true contrition, Father, in true sorrow over our sins, over those ways in which we break fellowship with you, Father, bring us back. Let your rod and staff comfort us. Bring us to that which you have prepared for us, that which you lead us into. And as we abide in you, Father, may we be nourished. Lord, help us not to seek to live this life alone. Lord, there is no salvation apart from you. And feasting in that which you nourish us in in yourself. And so, Lord, draw near to your church. Restore us. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. And we ask all of it in Jesus' name.